0: If I have not had the privilege of getting to meet you yet, my name is Asher Fraley. I'm so glad that you're here, and I could not be more excited just to be coming alongside of you and looking at God's Word together with you today. I wanted to just start this time by referencing an aspect of my time in college. It it overlaps with our text, and maybe it's similar to y'all's experience as well I studied architecture at at UTA, just a little bit away from here. And the way that the major was set up was they didn't offer the same classes in the spring that they did in the fall and vice versa. And so you can imagine, if you were to fail or um, have to drop a class, it wouldn't set you behind one semester but two. And so as a result of this, it made me extra diligent in my studies. I really didn't want to be set behind a whole year um, however you know college is just one of those times where you can try to make plans and set things up as best you can but they really have the potential to just collapse kind of at any moment. There's so many different factors let me let me just paint a hypothetical example for you this morning. Let's say that you're enrolled in a class let's say it's a biology class and it's late in the semester you go it's a Monday morning bright and early you got a test coming up on Wednesday. you go into class and you realize that the test you thought was on Wednesday is actually that morning, and you haven't studied at all for this thing. And so as you might expect, you take the test, and you get a failing grade, and afterwards you go into, I don't know, Blackboard or whatever it is, and look at your grade, and you had a C, but now you're failing the class as a whole, and failing the class means you're not going to be able to progress to major-related classes next semester. So you sit down, and you think, okay, I think it's time to change my major, and Suddenly changing your major means that you're having to rethink through a new career and having to rethink through a new career means that you're having to rethink through what you're passionate about because suddenly the next 30 years of your life just changed all because you thought that the test was on Wednesday and it was actually on Monday, right? Things can just collapse and change really at any moment in college. um, It's not a season that many of us, I'm sure, would define as stable, secure or unshakable, and yet that's something that all of us long for, for stability, for certainty of outcome, but life really hardly ever operates according to our plan. What we think of as stable in life oftentimes can prove itself to be vastly unstable by means totally outside of our control. Just to kind of name a few examples, if you ever you know, had a history class, you'll know that rate, nations rise and then they just fall overnight. Businesses rise and then crumble. Our careers can end just very quickly in ways out of our control. Our identities, our relationships, the area of effect of potential change is all around us. And I address that this morning because this concept of a longing for unshakability is the central theme of our text today. The author of Hebrews is going to strongly urge his audience to stay the course amidst whatever persecution they've been going through, and he does this through the use of a profound encouragement and then he follows it with a necessary warning. Which is consequently my goal for our time today is to illustrate both the encouragement and the warning and why Both ingredients are essential to live a life marked by an unshakable hope. And so if you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews 12. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. And and while you're flipping over there, I just want to highlight a really a reoccurring theme that we've seen throughout the last 11 chapters of Hebrews. You know, the author, he has this repetition of setting up a compare and contrast, where he'll, he'll demonstrate an old order, or an old way of doing things, and then contrast it with a final method of doing something, you know. The old high priest, the old system of high priests has been replaced by Jesus, the great high priest, or the old covenant has been replaced by the inauguration of the new covenant. And this theme goes on and he culminates his comparison of the old and the new with a final contrast here in, in Hebrews 12, and so if you've got your Bible open, I encourage you to read along with me. We're gonna start in verse 18, and we'll have the words up on the screen, too, so you can read along. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and a gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised So you might be wondering, well, what on earth is going on here? This passage is has the potential to be exceptionally confusing. And you know, the author of Hebrews, he's writing to a very specific audience, a, an audience that's made up of Jewish background believers. And so they have a an understanding of Old Testament themes and literature and rhetoric. And, and we oftentimes do not. And so the There's lots of references that are occurring in this particular passage that we just read that are referring to ideas in the Old Testament. So if you're feeling a little bit lost, don't worry. We're gonna unpack together what's going on here so that we can collectively glean the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has for us today. So to help guide our conversation in this, I wanna just ask a simple question. You don't have to answer this out loud, just think about it in your mind. The question is, what comes into your mind when you think about the word Christian or Christianity? Either either will do. There's plenty of applicable answers, but if, if what comes into your mind, what you're thinking about is something along the lines of a standard or perhaps rules, maybe even more specifically the Ten Commandments, the initial few verses in this passage are actually in reference to the Old Testament origin of the Ten Commandments. So let's go back and we're gonna start unpacking this together. Verse 18, it says, for you have not come to what may be touched. And maybe your translation says a mountain that may be touched. I like that. We'll go into that more in a second. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. So what the author is referring to here is the Israelites encounter with God at Mount Sinai. And this comes from Exodus 19. Let me paraphrase the story for you here. So go back in time. You've got The Israelite nation, they're slaves in Egypt. They've been there for several centuries now. God raises up this man named Moses to be this herald of freedom to the Israelites. So he comes in, let my people go. Ten plagues happen. Eventually, Pharaoh's like, I've had enough of this. You guys get out of here. So they leave, they cross the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness area. And God comes down in this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and he leads them throughout the wilderness to this mountain. And this mountain is Mount Sinai. And it's here where God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. And so if you remember earlier on in Hebrews, this idea of the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Well that old covenant is the one that occurs at Mount Sinai. So now that we've got an understanding as to the setting Let's go back and we're gonna get a picture as to the scene that's unfolding at Sinai. So again, verse 18, "'For you have not come to what may be touched, "'a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest.'" So the author uses four distinct adjectives, right? And notice, none of them are pleasant. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. So what's going on at Mount Sinai? Just to kind of recreate the imagery here. God calls the nation of Israel to come forward and present themselves in front of the mountain, and He's going to make a covenant with them there. And He says, but but He explicitly says, don't actually touch the mountain, or you're going to be consumed. You're going to be destroyed. And then it says that God comes down on the mountain in fire. So if you've ever, I don't know, been to Colorado, hiked a 14er, seen a mountain, you know this colossal geographical structure and it is consumed with fire. It's ablaze with fire and just picture it in your mind. The smoke is coming off of this mountain, probably in such great quantities that it's darkening out the sky. And so this is the imagery that we're seeing here. We're seeing the glory of God as he reveals his presence to the Israelites. So let's continue on. We're going to continue building the scene. This is verse 19 it says, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So there's this command that God speaks. We see it directly in the next verse. This is 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So God gives this command to them and it's, hey, if even a beast comes and touches the mountain, it's gonna be killed, which what? Is he's, he's implying is, if one of you comes, or even if a beast touches the mountain, it's gonna die. The bottom line, you cannot approach. You can't come near. The command is to remain distant. Last verse, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, this is Moses Right, this is God's selected herald of freedom to the Israelites while they were in slaves in Egypt. Um, This is his chosen mediator during this time between Israel and God, and even Moses is saying, "I I can't withstand this, I can't hold this, I'm trembling with fear. So the picture that we're seeing here, the reason why it's so dark, it's so downcast, is because we're getting a glimpse into what it looks like when sin is fully exposed in the presence of an all-powerful, all-holy, righteous judge. Sin in the presence of absolute holiness. And it is terrifying. So to be at this mountain, at Mount Sinai, is to not measure up to the standard of God's Holiness, his standard is perfection. And without grace, this is the mountain that you and I are at. But I wanna wanna highlight something here. So to be in the presence of God with sin is to be in a state of imminent peril, imminent destruction. Sin is always consumed by the holiness of God But inversely so, to be in the presence of God without sin is to be in a state of being wholly fulfilled, possessing indescribable joy and having supernatural peace. So I mentioned at the beginning, the author has a profound encouragement. So let's go ahead and we're gonna switch gears here and let's take a look at the good news that he's got for us today. This is starting in verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he goes on to list many more descriptions regarding Mount Zion, which we're going to unpack in just a second. But I want to give some clarity to what Mount Zion itself is, historically in the Old Testament. During King David's reign he goes and he conquers the city. The city is is on a hill named Zion and so it becomes the city of David and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament and, and the Bible as a whole, it gets referred to less as a geographical location and more referred to as a spiritual location representing the holy dwelling place of God or the city of God. And so when the author says you have come to Mount Zion that's the Zion he's referring to, is you've come into the city of God, not to a literal mountain, but you've come into the holy, heavenly dwelling place of God. Or in other words, you're in right relationship with God. Now, God's presence is at both of these mountains, both Sinai and Zion. But the the difference, the divide between the two could not be more stark. And so um, we're going to, explore these differences. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, so we've made a, a visual guide to help us be able to, to grasp how Sinai and Zion differ. This is a chart, and we're going to start with examples of Sinai that we've already referenced as a, as a reference point. So we've talked about how Sinai is an earthly location. It's a geographical location. Let's compare that to Zion. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Throughout the Bible, there's this theme of earthly versus heavenly, right? And it's the concept, the idea that things which are tied to the earth are perishable by nature. That's why Jesus says in Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because heaven is imperishable. The earthly investment will crumble and the heavenly investment will remain. So to have come to Mount Zion is to have come to that which is imperishable. Additionally, Sinai is marked as terrifying. You know, Moses is trembling with fear. That's the, the description at Sinai. But Zion seems to be the inverse. Let's look again at the end of 22 and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, thousands upon thousands of angels in festal gathering. Some translations will say in joyful assembly. This isn't the cold, dark, terrifying experience of Sinai. This is the opposite. These angels are in festal gathering. They're ready to celebrate, right? At Zion, you've got the party that's gonna end all parties. So while Sinai is terrifying, Zion is marked by rejoicing. Number three, we discussed how at Sinai there's a barrier, a sense of unapproachability, a right separation between sin and holiness. Well, Let's take a look at at Zion, verse 23 again. And to the assembly of the firstborn, and in Greek this word is pluralized, what it's referring to is, is believers, And what's their position? Who are enrolled in heaven. Love the word choice there, enrolled in heaven. If you sign up for a class and then go to that class, is it weird if you're there? No, it'd be weird if you weren't there, right? So what's the author saying here? He's saying it's not an accident that you've come to Zion. Um, When God saw your name on the guest list, he wasn't like, oh wow, I really didn't think that guy was gonna make the cut. On the contrary, God has specifically reserved for you a seat at the table and has said, come and enjoy fellowship with me. So at Sinai, you can't approach, but at Zion, you belong. Finally, and perhaps most essential, this last one's the most critical for us to grasp in terms of the distinction between these two mountains. At Sinai, God makes the Old Covenant with Israel. He gives them the law, gives them the Ten Commandments, which means to be at Mount Sinai is to be judged according to your own righteousness, your own merit, to be judged under the law, which we know no one ever fulfills. Broken people can't meet a perfect standard. And so if we've come to Mount Zion, then things must be different. We see this in verse 24. The writer associates Mount Zion with the new covenant, which means to be under grace through Christ. So to be at Sinai is to be judged under the law, while to be at Zion is to be under grace. Hopefully we're starting to be able to kind of mentally observe the stark contrast between the two. In doing this, we get to put ourselves in the place of the original audience of Hebrews, and we too get to see, okay, I see why the encouragement that we've come to Zion is so profound, it's so majestic. However, I think in exploring these differences, it should lead us to ask a simple question, which is, so what's changed? What's different? How is it that the writer of Hebrews so confidently says, this group of people has come to Sinai, but you have come to Zion? How is it that that we've got one here and one here? And how do you go from Sinai to Zion? And how do I know where I'm at? Which is something that we have got to address. Because we want to be certain that we've come to Zion. So what's changed? I think that there's a few potential differences. The first one that comes to my mind, and maybe you've thought of this too, is, well, maybe the character of God has changed. Maybe his nature has has evolved between the two times. After all, Sinai is, referred to the, is being referred to in the Old Testament, and when we read the Old Testament, there seems to be a perception of God's wrathful qualities as being illuminated, that's kind of what stands out, and then we contrast that with the New Testament, where we see Jesus, and he's interacting with sinners, and there seems to be much more mercy and compassion and forgiveness So maybe it's that the character of God has changed. Well, let's look at the passage, and we're going to see a description of God here. This is verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all. So at Sinai, God was the judge. And at Zion, he is still the judge, which makes sense. Part of God's nature, his character, is his unchangeability. Humans change and evolve and differ, but not so with the Lord. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So God is still the righteous judge. And what does a judge do? They pronounce right judgment on one who is guilty, which leads to the second potential change, which is well, maybe it's. So I see it's not that God's changed. Maybe it's that we've changed. Maybe we're just less sinful than the Israelite nation. You know, if we go back and we look at that passage, they were really messed up. God s- saves them out of Egypt, and then every step along the way, they rebel and grumble and complain and turn, and we can compare ourselves to them and say, man, they were, they were really messed up. Certainly, we're not that bad. Well, I feel like I don't need to spend much time on this one. For if we just ask ourselves a few simple questions of, man, how do I respond in certain situations? It's going to reveal to us the condition of our heart. Here's just a few questions. When I'm wronged, do I pursue reconciliation, or is revenge my natural inclination? I get cut off in traffic. Ah, oh, hate that guy. Right? How about this one? Do we? Reju- Do we rejoice at the success of others, or is jealousy what comes naturally? Third, when I'm met with a stressful situation, is trusting God my first reaction, or is it anxiety? Lastly, is love for others instinctual, or is love for self the first thought on my mind? When we Take a moment to just pause and have an honest inventory of how we respond in situations like these. This question needs no further consideration. Are we more guilt? Are we more less sinful than the Israelites at Sinai? No. Which leads to the third and final option. So, if it's not that God's changed, and if it's not that we've changed, well, what is it? The text gives us the answer. This is in verse 24, I'm gonna start in 23 for context. It says, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. So we just talked about this idea of how God is still the judge and how we are still sinners. So if you're in a courtroom, guilty as charged, you have got to pay a price for the crime that you've committed. That's that's fair, that's how it works, and you can't get out of it. There's nothing that you can do to escape it. What is it that you need in that moment? What you need is someone from the outside to come in who can say, I'll pay the debt. I will pay their price on their behalf. What you need is a mediator, someone to mediate between you and the judge. Well, Sinai had a mediator, Moses. But Moses was a sinner, just like me and you, and as such, he didn't have the capacity to be able to forgive sins. But there is one who can Jesus. God in the flesh comes to earth, fulfills the standard of perfection, dies on a cross. He willingly gives his life. The sinless Savior gives his life, but since he didn't have a debt to be paid because his life was perfect, He therefore had no sin to die for. So whose sin was he dying for? Romans chapter five says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price that you and I owed, which is the greatest news that there has ever been because it means that broken people like me and you can come to Zion not through any righteousness of our own, but only through Christ's sacrifice so we can stand before the creator of the universe. And it's not our sin that we're judged according to, but it's Jesus's righteousness. So to be at Mount Sinai is to be in wrong relationship with God. It's to be found guilty before a righteous judge, but the arms of Jesus are open wide. And he has said, come to me, and your sins are forgiven. Your debt will be paid. Come to Mount Zion. And it's by grace through faith in Jesus, the mediator, that we go from Sinai to Zion. So how should we respond to this? And for the remainder of our time, I just want to ask us two two questions. And the answer to these questions are going to illuminate how we should respond to the truth of this passage. Question number one, is Jesus your mediator? This is so vital, so important. I wanna unpack this for just a second. We spoke about the analogy of a courtroom, that we're in a courtroom, guilty as charged before a righteous judge, we have to pay a price. Jesus comes in, he says, I will pay the price for you. Now let's say in in this instance, we're actually watching the scene unfold from the perspective of the audience well how do you how do you expect the criminal to respond in that situation with overwhelming gratitude right and with a love and affection for the one who just saved them were moments before there was terror at assured condemnation, now there is elation and love for the Savior. And out of that love, what will follow? A changed life, a different way of living than before, a love for the things that Jesus loves. But I want you to notice the order here. This is is really important. First, there comes a change in identity. You go from guilty to innocent, and then comes a change in activity. It's not the other way around, where first obedience is demanded, and then identity is given to you. If it were that way, it would be a contract, but it's not. Jesus has made a covenant, which means that my identity is not tangential on my obedience, but rather. My obedience reflects my identity. And I say that to you as a comfort because maybe you're in this room today and you think, I have been drifting away from Jesus in my faith. Well, the whole book of Hebrews is written to a people who are drifting. And what does the author say to them? He says, you are at Zion, hold fast, Return to your first love. Jesus is not ashamed of you, but longs for you to have true fulfillment, which is found only in closeness to him. Question number one Is Jesus your mediator? Question number two Does your life show that you hold God's word as weighty? And to clarify why this is a natural response to what we've been talking about today, let's read together verse 25 from our passage, it says this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, referring to the Israelites at Sinai, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the beginning of our time today, I mentioned how the author has both an encouragement and a warning. This is the warning there are only two mountains. There's no option C. And every person on the planet is at one of these two mountains. And we discussed how God is the righteous judge at both Sinai and Zion. And what did we just conclude that we are sinners? And so in order for God to be righteous, what must he judge? Sin. The judgment of God is inevitable and it will either fall on the sinner at sinai or on the cross of christ at zion at sinai there is no capable mediator but at zion there is and so my plea for you if you're at sinai today is to run to the arms of christ jesus is not standing back saying you are not welcome here. Rather, he says, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Furthermore, Jesus didn't go to the cross because he had to. It wasn't out of guilt, like, ah, well, they're gonna die if I don't do this, so I guess I'll give my life for them. We didn't read it today, Nathan read it last week. At the beginning of chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross what was the joy the joy is that jesus is in heaven with those whom he loves those whom he has called to him the whole message of the bible from beginning to end resounds with the love of god for broken people for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that if anyone would believe in him they wouldn't perish, but they would have everlasting life. So if if you're here today and would say that you do not have a relationship with God, my encouragement for you is that you would run to Jesus who loves you and is calling you to him. But if you're in here today and you are in Christ, the warning is the same. Do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So who, don't refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking? Jesus. How is he speaking? Through his word. So do you hold his word as precious, as weighty, as something to be listened urgently because the way that we view people's words reveals what they mean to us you know the word of a boss holds more weight than the word of a co-worker or the word of a trusted ally we hold differently than the word of a stranger we view people's words in relation to the authority that they have so how should we view the word of God verse 28 therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The way we engage with the one who is speaking is with reverence and awe. This is how we view God's word, his call for our lives. We don't take it lightly. So do you hold God's word, what he's speaking to you as weighty, substantial, or do you hold it cavalierly, flippantly? When we treat our relationship with God with a a cavalier nature, the message that it sends to the watching world is that the gift you've been given is not your treasure. So be humble before the loving Father and live in such a way that your life echoes with reverence and awe. And I'm gonna close with the, the last verse, 29, says, for our God is a consuming fire. And I wanna close by looking at a passage that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. This is from 1 Corinthians 3. I'm just gonna paraphrase it here for the sake of time. Paul writes, for there's a foundation that's been laid which is Jesus Christ and if anyone builds on the foundation, builds as in how they live, they build with different categories. There's gold, silver, precious stones and then there's wood, hay, and straw and it says that at the end, the consuming fire of God is gonna come through and it's gonna reveal how everyone lived. It's gonna reveal how you lived and if the work that's built on the foundation survives, then you will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, there will be a loss. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying there's a foundation, the foundation is Jesus. That foundation is unshakable. So if you are in Christ, you are standing on that unshakable foundation, which is Zion. And there's no earthquake, no suffering, no loss on this earth that can ever shake you off of that foundation. Your hope is secure in heaven. And that is magnificently encouraging. But then on that foundation, you build. And what you build is representative of what you do, of how you live. And there's two types of outcomes. There are those who build with a lifestyle marked by a treasure found preeminently in Jesus and who lived a life with faith-filled obedience following in the footsteps of Christ and at the end, the consuming fire of God comes through and it will refine your heavenly gold. And then there are those who build with a divided heart for their eyes were not focused on Zion, but they were focused on the hollowness of this earth. And at the end, the consuming fire of God will come through just the same, and there will be a loss due to a life that didn't rightly value the gift of an unshakable kingdom. And so my final encouragement for you if you're in Christ, then you've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let our response be to live in such a way that it shows the world that the giver of that gift, Jesus the mediator, is your treasure. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are the giver of... All good gifts. It says that all good gifts come from above, and you have given us the greatest gift, which is Jesus. And Lord, we just want to collectively now come humbly before your presence, recognizing you as God. um, And we just want to thank you for the cross and thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, without which we would not be at Zion today. So, Lord, hallowed be your name in our lives would you continue to equip us and inspire us to live radically and to display that jesus is our supreme treasure amen